Welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us here today, welcome. We are really, really glad that you're here and you picked a great Sunday to join us because we are kicking off a brand new sermon series looking at the life of Jacob. And just so you know, Jacob is one of the most complicated and interesting characters in all of the Bible. And we are gonna learn a ton about ourselves and about God by looking at his life over the next seven weeks. When you came in here today, there was a series card on your chair. So I'll ask you to grab that now if you would do me a solid. Um, On the back of that, that just has a couple of uh, major events that are coming up in this series on Jacob's life. And so you wanna be aware of those. And I wanna point you to one event in particular, and that's on February 26th. We're gonna be hosting a night of worship and prayer here at our facility. When you study Jacob's life, here's what you find. Jacob did not know how to pray. Okay, when he was a teenager, he didn't know how to pray. When he was a young adult, he didn't know how to pray. It took him about 60 years to learn how to seek God's face in prayer and it changed everything. And I don't know about you, but I feel that way sometimes. Sometimes I don't feel like I know how to pray, okay? And I'm a pastor, I'm paid to pray, okay? And I don't know how to do it. And so what we're doing as a church is we're just leaning in and saying, man, how can we grow as a people of prayer? How can we grow in seeking God's face? And so that's what we're gonna do on Sunday, February 26th in the evening. Man, we're gonna worship together. Man, we're gonna pray. We're gonna seek God's face together. It's gonna be a really powerful, powerful night, man, that I don't think you want to miss. So put that on your calendar. Go ahead and sign up. We've got limited child care for ages six and under. And so I wanted to make you guys aware of that. Um, Well, before we talk a little bit more about the life of Jacob, I wanna pull the curtain back a little bit and explain to you um, some things about how we think about preaching here. Because if you think about it, preaching is a lot of what we do, right? I mean, I'm gonna be up here for more than half the time. And you're like, that's a long time. You're like, I'm gonna try to keep it interesting, okay? I'm gonna be up here for more than half the time. We spend a lot of time thinking about and planning for preaching. And so I just wanna explain to you, man, why we preach the way that we do, why we preach the things that we do, okay? And I'm gonna do that by giving you a couple principles. Um, Here's principle number one. We believe that the Bible is, God's word, okay? We believe the Bible is God's word. So we don't believe that the Bible is simply a book about God written by men, but that the Bible is a book from God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so when I get up here or Justin gets up here or anybody else gets up here, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to look at what it says, explain it to you, and then help you apply it to your life. Okay, I'm trying to help us understand what is it that God has put in his scriptures for his people and then how do we apply that and be changed by it? So the, the technical kind of theological word for this is expository preaching. All right, and you can do that in one of two ways. You can do that by kind of walking chapter by chapter through a, a book of the Bible. So that's what we're gonna do in this series. Or you can do it by picking an important topic and then just explain what does the Bible say about that topic? And that's what we did in the Proverbs series, okay? So you might call the Proverbs series a topositional series because I picked a topic and then exposited what the Bible said about it, okay? So that's the first principle. We believe the Bible is God's word. And so that's what I'm trying to do here on Sundays is explain it to you. Here's the second thing that we believe. We believe it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian, okay? The whole Bible to make a whole Christian. This is a large book, right? This is a large, can we agree on that? This is a large book. And in fact, it's actually a collection of 66 distinct books, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they're all different. So you have some that are letters, you have others that are poetry, you have others that are prophecy, you have others that are historical narrative. And here's the thing, if you only read the things that you like, you end up like that guy that only does upper body at the gym. You know what I'm talking about? You don't want spiritual chicken legs, guys. You don't want that, all right? We got to get in there and do leg day, all right? And so Here's what I try to do as a pastor and our elder team is prayerful about this. And we're always asking this question, man, where does God want us to go next? 
What part of the scriptures does he want us to study next? And we try to give you a balanced diet throughout the year, okay? So we did 1 Peter, that's a letter. Then we did John, that's a gospel. Then we did Proverbs, that's wisdom literature. And now for the next seven weeks, we're gonna do the life of Jacob, which is Old Testament narrative, all right? So the idea is, man, we wanna get a little bit of all of God's word in a year so we get that well-balanced diet. Um, now here's the thing. Genesis is 50 chapters long. Okay, that's a long book. So if I said, hey, I'm just gonna preach chapter by chapter through Genesis, it would take me well over a year to do that. And then you wouldn't have a balanced diet, right? You would have a whole lot of Genesis and not a whole lot of anything else. And so what I like to do is break up larger books into smaller chunks. So with Genesis, for instance, in 2019, we preached through chapter one through 11. In 2020, we did chapters 12 through 22. Now we're gonna do 25 through 33. And at some point in the future, we'll come back and finish it. Okay, but it's a way for us to get a well-balanced diet while at the same time going chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Okay, does that make sense? I hope that's helpful. Some of you are like, that's so interesting. Others of you are like, what are you talking about? Okay, I thought it would be helpful. All right, let's talk about Jacob. Um, he is truly one of the most intriguing people in the entire Bible. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Number one, he's a twin. Anybody a twin in here? We got any twins in the room? We got some twins. Yes, Tegan. Okay, this is not fair. I try to work really hard on names and I know Tegan's name. And then her twin sister came to church a couple of months ago. And I was like, hey, Tegan. She was like, that's not my name. And I was like, you are definitely Tegan. She's like, no, I'm Greer, her twin sister. And I was like, this is not fair. Okay, yeah, so uh, not, not a whole lot of twins. It's interesting if you're a twin, right? Jacob is a twin, so that's kind of interesting. Um, his life is an absolute dumpster fire, okay? That is a theological term. I mean, it is just, it is a mess. The narrative of his life is raw and it is very, very honest. And here's part of what we learn from Jacob's life. Change is a process, it is not an event. Change is a process, it is not an event, and it's a process that often takes a very long time, and we're gonna see that in Jacob's life. Um, he had conflict all over the place. He had conflict with his parents, he had conflict with his brother, in his marriage, and with his kids, and a lot of it was his own fault. A lot of it was his own doing. So with Jacob, you're not gonna get like this perfect picture churchgoer, you know, that everything, he's got a halo, and he's leading devotionals and singing hymns with his children, right? More often than not, there's like backstabbing and conniving and, and manipulation, okay? I'm just telling you how it is. That's what you're gonna see in Jacob's life. Um, third, he had 13 children by four different women. Just so you know, that's three women too many, okay? Like that's not how many you're supposed to have. Uh, 13 children by three different women and his 12 sons end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so like if your vision of the Bible is that it's a story of a bunch of really good men and women that God loves because they're such good people, you're gonna be in for a surprise, okay? Because like the, the guy who Israel is named after was not a good guy and he had all of these kids by all these different women, okay? So like, it just get ready. It's just like Jerry Springer of the Old Testament, okay? Like just get ready for this. Um, lastly, I think this is the most fascinating thing. For over a decade, he thought his youngest son was dead. Okay, so like if you're a parent, like think about how hard that would be like, man, my youngest son is done. I've like grieved him. The whole thing has been a decade. And then 10, almost 10 years later, he finds out not only is his youngest son not dead, his youngest son has become the vice president of Egypt. Like just like a mad, like that's like crazy. You know, you're like watching TV, some a political ad comes on. You're like, that's my son who I thought was dead is now the vice president. You know, like that, like that happened in this guy's life, okay? So he's just a fascinating, fascinating character. His life is full of all sorts of spiritual ups and downs. And over the next seven weeks, we are going to learn a lot, not only about Jacob, but we're gonna learn a lot about the character of God. Because here's kind of how the story of Jacob works. You learn about God's character by contrasting it with Jacob's character. So Jacob is a liar, he just is. He lies all the time, he's always manipulating people. God is always true to his word. 
Man, Jacob is greedy. He's always trying to get his. He's always trying to get what he wants to get and climb the ladder and step on other people. And God is generous and he is sacrificial towards his people. Man, Jacob is constantly running away. He's constantly turning his back on God and God is constantly chasing Jacob down. So if your life ever feels like a mess, if you ever feel like you haven't done it all right, or like, man, there's some issues that you're trying to work through, I think Jacob's is gonna give you a lot of hope because Jacob is a poignant example that we are saved by grace through faith and not by moral performance. Guys, more often than not, Jacob is a negative example to avoid rather than a positive example to emulate. And yet God continues to be faithful in his life. Okay, so over the next seven weeks, we're gonna learn a lot about this guy and we're gonna learn a lot about God. And then by application, we're gonna learn about our lives today. All right, we're just gonna start with his birth story in verse 19. Here we go. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean to be his wife. All right. If you're, in, you know, if you're listening well, you'd be like, Josh, I thought we were talking about Jacob. Okay, why, why are we starting with Isaac? Well, the reason we're talking about Isaac is to understand Jacob and who he is and why he matters. You really have to kind of zoom out and understand the whole book of Genesis, okay? So um, the book of Genesis, uh, the word Genesis means beginnings. It is a book of beginnings. So in Genesis, we, we read about the beginning of the world. We learn about the beginning of mankind and we learn about the beginning of God's people. And the book of Genesis is built around six key men. Okay, that's kind of how the narrative works. You've got Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. All right, so if you ever wanna think through like how does Genesis work, it's really just about those six men and how God is working through them and they're all related to one another. It's like one giant family history going through the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter one and two, we read that God created the world and it was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. He created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden of Eden um, and he gave uh, Adam and Eve a, a beautiful place to live, a fulfilling job to do and a good command to obey. Okay, those are the three things that he get. Beautiful place, man, fulfilling job, man, good command to obey. He said, hey, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of fruit of evil. You can eat of any other tree. You live in a world of yeses with one no, but I need you to just honor my authority and I need you to trust me. I need you to not eat of that tree. So that's Genesis one and two. In Genesis chapter three, everything goes wrong uh, because Adam and Eve decide I know better than God and I, I know what's best for me. I'm gonna take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And as a result, man, they, they take from the tree, they rebelled against God's good authority. Man, they brought sin and suffering and brokenness into their lives and into the world. And so as a result of their rebellion, God cast them out of the good place he had created for them. He cursed the good work that he'd given them to do and all the sin and suffering and brokenness that we all walk around in every day man, came into the world because of their choices. So Genesis three is a very, very sad, very, very heavy, very, very uh, dis discouraging and depressing chapter. But in the midst of it, in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God gives us this little thread of hope. He says to Adam, hey, Adam, things are really bad today. This is a really dark day. He says, but one day I'm gonna bring a descendant through your family that's gonna reverse this curse. I'm gonna bring, us, I'm gonna bring someone from your family line that's gonna defeat Satan, sin, and death, and is gonna be the savior of the world. Okay, so God says, I'm gonna do that through someone coming through your family line. So if you're reading the book of Genesis through that lens, all of a sudden you realize, man, Adam's family is really important. And you're like, okay, we gotta make sure that like his descendant gets married and then they have kids and they get married and they have kids because if this line dies out, like if this family stops, then the hope of the world has been extinguished, okay? So fast forward to Genesis chapter 12 and we meet another one of Adam's descendants, a guy named Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and makes him this incredible promise. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. And I'm gonna give you descendants like the sand on the seashore and they're gonna be my special people in all the earth. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bring my savior through your family and then your family is gonna be a lighthouse 
cross to the entire world so that the nations might come and repent and receive forgiveness and trust in me. And you think, man, this is an incredible promise. Right, the problem was that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were very, very old and had no children, like way past childbearing. So it seemed like God's entire plan and entire promise had failed before it even got started. Right, and Abraham and, and Sarah, they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. It seems like nothing's gonna change. And then when all hope seemed lost, miraculously, I mean, truly miraculously, man, Sarah has like a geriatric pregnancy. You know, anymore, it's like if you're over 35, they call it a geriatric pregnancy. She was like 75, okay? Like, this is like crazy. Um, and so they, they have a child, this promised miraculous child, that is Isaac. And Isaac is Jacob's dad. Okay, we starting to see why this matters. Like this family that Jacob is gonna be born into is massively important for the entire world. Like they are the promised family. Man, his dad was this miracle baby. So it's like, great, Isaac is here. Let's get Isaac married so that he can start having kids and we can get this thing going and not have to worry so much. But it's not gonna be that easy. Look at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, because she was barren. No doubt Isaac and Rebecca were eager to start a family. I mean, it says Isaac was 40 years old when he got married and, and 40 years old was very, very old to get, to get married back then. So he'd waited a long time to get married. He finally found Rebecca. She was his sweetheart. It's actually a very sweet story how they met. It's in Genesis 24. So man, they, they get married, they come together. He's a godly man, she's a godly woman. They just can't wait to man, come together and, and to start building a family. Um, but man, month after month after month after month comes and every time they think like, maybe this is the month, it's not the month. And maybe this is the month, it's not the month. And they, you know, they're watching their friends, you know, have, have kids and they're watching their cousins, you know, have kids and they're watching everybody else around them and be able to have the thing that they, that they wanna have. And yet the scriptures tell us it goes on for 20 years and they're unable to have children. They're unable to conceive. Um, you see, Re Rebecca and Isaac experienced infertility, right? What, what the Bible often refers to as barrenness. Um, and, and infertility is actually a pretty major theme throughout the scriptures. So some of the, the most key women in the Bible experienced this. So Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and Elizabeth, um, just, to, just to name a few. Um, so the, the question I think that if we're gonna be honest with ourselves, we have to ask is why, right? If, if children are a blessing from the Lord, as Psalm 127 says, man, if these are godly families that wanna raise godly children to know and worship the Lord, then, then why won't God allow them to have a child? And put maybe a little more personally, why won't God allow you to have a child? Right, maybe you're here and uh, man, you, you would love to have children. You're like, what I wanna do, Josh, is I just wanna like have children. I wanna raise them to know Christ. Man, man, my husband and I are married. We have this, this secure home. We have an income. Like, man, we, we have a home that we could bring somebody into. And yet, and month after month comes and goes and we simply aren't able to have children. Why won't God let us have kids? Um, it's, a, it's a big question in the Bible. It's a big question that a lot of people wrestle with. You maybe wrestle with it. And on a, on a theological level, the answer is that um, the fall of man, Adam and Eve's choices have really affected more than just them. So Romans 8, 22 through 23 tells us that, that creation itself and our bodies groan under the curse of sin. And so what that means is that, man, our, our bodies don't always work the way that they're designed to work. And, and so one of the reasons that, man, we experience infertility is because our, our bodies are just kind of broken and, and, and we experience that in different ways and some people experience it through infertility. So on a theological level, that's the answer, but that doesn't really answer the, the personal question, right? That's like, why, why is it that some people generally can't have kids? That doesn't answer the question, why can't we have kids? Because there's other people who can. 
right? Why won't God let us have a kid when he'll let everybody else have a kid? And can we just be really honest in our darkest moments? We look around and we say, there's a whole lot of people that have no business having kids that have them. And yet here we are and we love Jesus and we're like secure and stable and have this home and we're gonna bring it into it and God won't give them to us. Right, infertility is one of the most difficult things, man, that, that we walk through in life. And honestly, the, the short answer to the question, why won't God let you have kids is I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God allows some people to, to have biological children and not other people. And I recognize that's a really difficult tension to live in. It's a really sorrowful tension to live in. Um, the, the hope that I would offer you is that throughout the scriptures, we find that God has a particular concern for women who experience infertility. So all throughout the, the scriptures, you find, man, women who struggle with infertility playing massively important roles in the redemptive plan of God. They constantly show up. Another thing that you find is that sometimes, man, God answers their prayers and God enables them to conceive. Right, that's gonna be the case with Rebecca. That's the case with a number of other women throughout the scriptures. And that may be your story. I mean, I, I know people in our church that, man, struggle with infertility for many, 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 many years. And then, you know, what, something happened, God answered their prayer, something happened, and they were able to conceive in the future. So that might be your story, but it might not be. In fact, God might be writing a story for you that is different than the story that you would write for yourself. God might be writing a story for you that is really painful in some ways. You have whole chapters that you don't really understand and you kind of ask the question, why? And I, again, I can't, answer, I can't answer why God is or isn't doing certain things in your life, but I can say that as a church, man, we, we wanna have the same heart that God has. We wanna have a heart where we walk with one another, man, through the difficult chapters of the story, man, be a place that cares for one another, man, and that can rejoice with those who rejoice, but can also weep with those who weep. So Rebecca was infertile for 20 years, 20 years, waiting, 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 waiting. And then in verse 21, man, God answers Isaac's prayer. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, I think it's interesting to notice that it was the prayer of Isaac that God heard and answered. Here's what's fascinating about that. There was something that God wanted to do in Rebekah's life, but he waited until her husband prayed for it. That's food for thought. I think this is pretty challenging out there if you're a husband like I am. What is it that God might wanna do in your wife's life that he's waiting for you to pray for? Maybe there's a ministry that he wants her to step into. Maybe there's a, a greater experience of gospel freedom that he wants her to experience. Maybe there's a, a hurt or a wound from the past that he wants to heal and, and he's ready to pour it out and he's just waiting for you to ask for it. It's a convicting question to, to, to ask, man, if God answered all of your prayers from this week, how much better off would your wife be? Man, Isaac, Isaac goes to the Lord on behalf of his wife. He, he cries out for her and God hears his prayer and then does something in her life and she's able to conceive. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So here's fascinating. Not only does Rebecca conceive, but she conceives twins. Okay, so she had some serious praying by Isaac, right? Like she, she conceives twins and she had a very, very hard pregnancy. Okay, that's what we would call it today, but it's a very hard pregnancy. That, we see that word struggled in the text. That word literally means an intense clash in the womb. 
So it's like these children are like fighting each other, man, in the womb. And it was so intense that Rebecca cried out, what is happening to me? And all the moms said, amen. I know what you're talking about, you know? It's like, what is happening to my body? Like, what is happening within me? So she starts praying. It's such a hard pregnancy. She's like, God, what is going on? And verse 23, God answers. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So not only did Rebecca have two children in her womb, but God tells her, no, you actually have the head of two nations in your womb. So these two children become the heads of large nations of people. So uh, Esau became the head of the Edomites and excuse me, Jacob became the head of the Israelites. And these two groups of people are, are gonna be in conflict for hundreds and hundreds of years all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So you get into the, the prophets of the Old Testament and sometimes they're, they're talking about the Edomites and how the Edomites are attacking the Israelites and how they're praying that God would protect them and judge them. And then you realize like that's brother, like that's who that is like that's like older brother like beating up younger brother that's what's happening okay so you've got these two family these two sons these two nations that are come from the womb but beyond that god said the older child esau is going to serve the younger child jacob now that might not strike you as odd but that was very very strange it was very very strange because in that time and in that culture the ancient near east birth order was very very important because birth order determined inheritance so when someone was giving birth to twins, whoever was helping deliver the baby would actually keep a piece of scarlet thread with them. And whichever baby came out first, they would tie that scarlet thread on that baby's hand or foot just to make sure everybody was clear, this is the firstborn, this is the one who gets the inheritance. Because if you were the firstborn, you got double the inheritance of everybody else and you became the patriarch of the next generation. So in this case, man, we're, we're talking about thousands of acres of land, herds and herds of livestock, all sorts of household employees and the, the influence and power that came from being the head of a large influential family in the ancient Near East. Okay, so this is a big deal. And here's what God says. Actually, I'm not gonna do it the way that culture says it should be done. In fact, I'm gonna have the older Esau serve the younger. I'm not gonna give the birthright to Esau. I'm gonna give it man, to Jacob. I'm gonna work through Jacob. I'm gonna let Jacob be the inheritor of the family land and the family name and the family blessing. And this goes all the way down to, to God's covenant blessing. He's like, hey, I'm not gonna give the promise that I gave to Abraham and Isaac. I'm not gonna give it to Esau. Man, I'm gonna give it to Jacob instead. And you know, I, I think it kind of prompts a question. Like, why? Like, why did God do it that way? Well, I mean, Esau was gonna be the firstborn. He, he deserved to get it, right? And the answer from Romans chapter nine is God just chose to do it that way. So in Romans chapter nine, uh, the apostle Paul is answering the question, why is it, and maybe you've asked this question, why is it that some people accept Jesus and other people reject him? You ever asked that question? You ever been like, why is it that I, in my family, I'm a follower of Jesus, but my siblings aren't? Like, why is it that like at work, like I follow Jesus, but like I share the gospel with coworkers and they're not interested. Why is it that, you know, I'm, I'm following Jesus at UVA, but like, all, everybody else in my fraternity isn't? Like, have you ever, ever asked that question? Paul's asking that exact question in Romans chapter nine. He, he's saying, hey, why is it that some of God's people, the Jews, received Jesus as the Messiah, but a whole bunch of other ones rejected him? Like, why is that the case? And Paul's answer is this. He says, by nature, we are all so sinful that by nature, we all reject Christ, all of us. But because God is so wonderful and gracious, out of his mercy and kindness, he does a miracle in some of our hearts that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to turn and believe, and he saves some of us. And then he uses the illustration of Esau and Jacob to make that point. He says, just so you know, it's not because you were better morally. 
It's not because God looked down and was like, man, I'd really like to get them on my team. You know, like let's draft them onto the team. He's like, no, that's not at all what it's about. He says, consider Esau and Jacob. They were still in the womb. Neither of them had done anything good or bad. And yet according to his sovereign purposes, God chose to work through Jacob and not Esau, simply because he decided to do it. Now we're 21st century Americans, right? How do we feel about that? How do we, you know how you feel. That's not fair, right? That is not fair. Why didn't Esau get chosen, right? What if you were Esau? You'd be so mad, right? Like, like we, we don't like the idea that, that God has sovereign choice. And, and that's the objection that Paul brings up in Romans 9. He immediately goes into that objection. And he says, guys, here's what you've got to realize. If, if you don't want God to be fair, because if God were fair, we would all be condemned. He says, justice and wrath is what's fair. Salvation, man, and new life and forgiveness is what's, is what's gracious. So I had a professor in seminary that gave me an illustration that I thought was really helpful about this. He said, hey, if, if you understand yourself to be like a really good person who was like born as a worship leader, just singing hallelujahs, right? And man, your whole life, you've been just actively seeking after God and trying to find God. And you're like, God, I just wanna know you. And you imagine like God is like stiff arming you, then, then you would maybe be justified in feeling indignant, right? Like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find you, God. How dare you not let me find you? You're such an unkind God, you know? He said, sure, that's how we tend to think about ourselves as Americans, right? Like, we're all good people with good hearts, right? And, and we're all trying to do the right thing. He says, but that's not what the Bible says. He says, the Bible actually says that by nature, we are not seeking after God. That like the moment, the moment we're born, we, we turn our backs on God and we run as fast as we can towards hell. And by sheer grace and mercy, God reaches out his arm and he puts it on your shoulder and he pulls you back to himself. He says, that is actually a biblical understanding of salvation. And when you understand that, you, you stop trying to like put God on, on trial and be like, God, that's not fair. And instead you raise your hands and worship and say, God, it's, so, it's not fair that you're so gracious to me. Like, I'm so grateful that you love me and that, you, and that you've cleansed me of my sin and you've given me new life. Right? And, and so one of the things Paul does, he's like, hey, just look at Jacob and Esau. It should have been Esau by, according to you know, cultural traditions, it wasn't because God chose to do it a different way, okay? So here's kind of the application of all that theology. I know some of that was, was deep. Um, if, if you're here and you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, man, you should be a profoundly humble and grateful person. <laughs> Right, the aroma of our lives should be humility and graciousness and winsomeness because I'm not here because I was good. And if you're a Christian, you're not on the team because you were really good. It's not like you had better spiritual instincts than your friends did. It's not like you were a better, you know, you were a better moral performer than anyone else. It is only by the sheer grace of God, man, that you have been born again and cleansed of your sins. And so the aroma of our lives and the aroma of our church, man, should be humility and gratefulness. We should be a very easy group of people to be around. Now, I would suggest to you that one of the problems in the church today is that we don't understand this. And we walk around with this arrogance, like, oh, so I'm so much better than my neighbor who's you know, living an alternative lifestyle or who votes differently than me or who is you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm so much better than them. How dare they? It's like, whoa, like, let's actually read what the Bible says. No, but for the grace of God, so you go. And so the church should be a group of very winsome, very humble, very grateful people because we're just so excited that God saved us. All right, so if you're a Christian here, that's my hope for our church. That, that would, we wouldn't be some sort of like highbrow, hoity-toity, like we're so morally superior, but we'd just be like gracious, winsome people that are easy to be around. On the flip side of that, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're kind of not sure, you're sort of checking things out, here's what I would say. Don't trust in your moral performance because you might be a better person than me, but it's just not gonna make any difference. I was telling people on Friday night at the weekender, um, imagine we all went to the Outer Banks. Any Outer Banks people out there? I love the Outer Banks, great. Outer Banks, we got five of us, great. So you'll understand what I'm talking about. Let's say we all go to the Outer Banks and we were both got in the water. We're like, hey, I've got an idea. Let's swim to Spain. 
You know, be, look, let me just be honest with you. You're gonna get further than me. This body was not designed for sp- swimming. It was designed for sinking, okay? I'm like Gimli the dwarf from, you know, Lord of the Rings. Like I'm like wide and short. Um, so I'm not making it very far. You're gonna outswim me, but here's what we all know. We're gonna end up in the same place. You're not making it to Spain. You'll make it further than me, but you're not gonna make it to Spain. Well, the Bible says the same thing is true about our moral performance. You might genuinely be a good person compared to me, right? But it just doesn't matter when compared to what is required man, to know God and be reconciled to him. So if you're here and you're sort of trying to figure things out, I'd say, hey, don't trust in your church attendance. Don't trust in your moral performance. Don't be like, man, if like we kind of clean things up, man, then God is gonna accept us because that's never gonna be enough. Here's, here's what I would say. Instead, man, come to Christ. Look to Christ, the son of God, whose death and resurrection is sufficient to cover all of your sins and who beckons any who would come to repent and believe in him. That's the invitation of scripture. Don't look to yourself. Instead, look to Christ and find your satisfaction, find your salvation in him. Okay, so in verse 23, God establishes Jacob and not Esau as the inheritor of the promise. That's gonna matter a lot here in a second. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. The word Jacob means heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, so conflict between Jacob and Esau is going to define most of Jacob's early life. Anybody got that sibling, right? You don't have to raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about? You're just like always at each other's throats. Like you just don't get along. You're very, very different. Well, man, that was Jacob and Esau. They could not have been, man, more different from one another. Here's what we learned about Esau, man. Esau was burly. He was a skillful hunter. He was a man of the field, all right? He was a tough guy. He was a man's man. He drove a diesel truck with mud tires, had a beard and wore a lot of real tree camo, okay? Like that is who Esau was, right? And Jacob was a quiet man who preferred to stay inside. As Jim Gaffigan would say, Jacob was indoorsy, okay? He was not outdoorsy, he was indoorsy. And, And what we learned is that Isaac, the dad, loved and played favorites and he preferred Esau. And and maybe that's because they like went hunting together. It says that, you know, Isaac loved to eat of his game. And then Rebecca, the mom loved and preferred man, Jacob, which makes sense because, you know, Jacob was around the house more. Um, So now we have Isaac and Rebecca playing favorites. Is that a problem? Yes. Okay. Yes. And it's only going to get worse from here. Guys, here's, here's the stone cold truth. Jacob came from a massively dysfunctional family. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that one, right? But like, can anybody relate to that? Like maybe there's a sibling you don't get along with. Maybe there's like an uncle whose family is totally estranged from your family because like that thing went down 10 years ago and it's just, we don't talk to them anymore. We don't see them anymore. They don't come to Thanksgiving. Uh, Maybe you're divorced and you're trying to figure out, man, how do we, you know, how do we parent our kids? Maybe your parents are divorced and there's always this kind of culture of competition, you know, for loyalty. Like, you know, mom is saying this about dad and dad's saying this about mom. You're like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, Maybe there are big political differences in your family. Uh, you know, that, that tend to blow up at all the worst times, right? Maybe, I don't know, maybe part of your family are, are followers of Christ and part of your family aren't followers of Christ. And there's animosity between that. And, you know, the, the folks that aren't followers of Christ kind of feel like you're like judgy and judgmental and arrogant. And you're trying to be like, no, we're not that. But how do we like, how do we like stand strong for truth, but at the same time be winsome, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's infidelity in your family. Maybe there's, maybe there's brokenness, maybe there's hurt, maybe there's pain. That was Jacob's family. And it's only gonna get worse. And I say that because I think often, here's what we think. Um, God can't work through me 
or I can't be a part of this church because my family is too broken. Like my family is too messy. And what we see in Jacob's life is that God is able to work in the midst of the mess. He's able to work in the midst of the dysfunction. He's able to work in the midst of the brokenness. Now, God has a good design for family that we find in the scriptures, one that doesn't include playing favorites, one that doesn't include infidelity, divorce, harboring bitterness, man, estrangement. And when we walk according to God's design, we, we do experience blessing. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you would say, hey, my family's not perfect, man, but, but my family has been a blessing to me. Right, but, but what we see in Jacob's life is even in the hardest circumstances, even in the most dysfunctional family, God is able to work and that gives us hope. All right, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Okay, this is a very weird interaction. So Jacob's in the house making chili or whatever. And you know, Esau comes in and he like takes off his, you know, his, his duck boots that are up to his knees or whatever and like kicks them off. And he's like, he's a total meathead. You know, he's like, I'm hungry, give me stew, you know? And uh, he doesn't even ask, please. Um, but then Jacob, Jacob basically is like, oh yeah, sure. I'll give you some of this chili if you sell me your birthright. And like to us, that's like, what does that mean? That essentially that's like Esau came in and was like, hey man, can I have a hot pocket? And Jake was like, yeah, just give me your car, your house and your 401k and I'll give you a hot pocket. Right, like he's just been a total jerk is what he's been. He's like, no, you can't have any of my chili. Like get out of here, like make your own food, right? Um, so we don't, we don't understand that because the birthright tells us like, what is a birthright? But it was everything. I mean, it was massive amounts of land. It was massive amounts of livestock. It was household employees. It was, it was literally like, hey, uh, Esau, you're gonna inherit the family business and I'll give you this bowl of chili if you'll let me inherit the family business. That's, that's what he, I mean, he's, he's being a jerk is what he's doing. And this is what Esau says. Um, tell you a little bit about Esau. He says in uh, verse 30, uh, 32, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, is Esau about to die? No, he's being a teenager. You know what this, I'm starving to death. And you're like, you ate a snack 40 minutes ago. You know, like he's just, I mean, we've all day, he's just being like a moody teenager, like, and he's being dramatic. What good is a birthright to me? I'm about to die, you know? So then Jacob just sort of starts pressing his advantage. He's like, oh man, I think he's actually so hungry and he's, in, he's so hungry right now. He's gonna make a bad decision. So he presses him. Man, he's like a salesman, like pressing his advantage, verse 33. So Jacob says, swear to me now. And back then, if you, if you swore something, you couldn't get it back. It's not like today where it's like, that didn't mean anything. It's like, if you swore something, you could not. This is like a binding contract. Man, Esau is hungry. Esau is weak. Jacob sees his opportunity. He says, swear to me now. So he, Esau, swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of chili. Then Jacob gave Esau, well, he included some bread. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And here's the summary verse, ready? Thus Esau despised his birthright. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, we learn a lot about the character of both Esau and Jacob from this interaction. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, neither of them are very good characters, okay? Neither of them are very good characters. But as we look at what the spirit of Esau is and the spirit of Jacob is, I think we're gonna see it all around us in our world today. And I think if we're honest, we're gonna see it in ourselves. All right, so let's start with Esau, spirit of Esau. Was Esau the victim in this story? Well, in some ways, right? His brother manipulated him. But man, he only manipulated him because he was able to be manipulated, right? We learn a lot about Esau. Here, here's what we learn about Esau. He didn't give a rip about his birthright. He didn't give a rip about his birthright. He had no concern for the future, his family responsibilities or the promise of God. He was focused entirely on his immediate appetite. Hebrews 12, 16 describes Esau as a worldly man. That is an unholy man, one who didn't care about the things of God. 
He was hungry and he wanted to eat, so he ate. Later, he, was, he wanted to get married, so he married two women that did not know or love God. Man, he, he, the spirit of Esau says, I wanna feel good. Man, I wanna feel good, I wanna be comfortable, I wanna satisfy my appetites. I think in terms of a good time, not in terms of a good legacy. And we read Esau's choice and we're shocked by it. And yet aren't we faced with very similar decisions every single day? Maybe not to the same magnitude, but the same in essence. Man, we, we choose instant gratification over long-term good. I mean, we all get this at like a super practical level, all right? So it's the new year, I'm trying to eat more salads and it is a struggle, guys, okay? Here's what I don't understand. Number one, salads never taste as good as a fried chicken sandwich, all right? It might, and some of you are like, salads are good. They're not as good, okay? Like, can we just be honest about that? And salads are more expensive than a fried chicken sandwich. Have we, like, why is it that the thing that tastes less good is more expensive? I've never understood that. Anyway, so it's like, in that moment, I don't wanna eat a salad. And if I'm only living for like instant gratification, I won't eat a salad. Man, I've gotta think beyond right now to be like, okay, I don't wanna develop like high cholesterol. I don't, you know, wanna develop heart issues. I wanna be around for my grandkids. Okay, I need to eat this salad even though I don't want to right? Maybe some of you guys can relate with this with like working out, you know? Man, you started off the year strong, all right? You were like, get a P90X, you were gonna CrossFit. You, you got to P90 15 is where you got, you know? And then you're like, man, this Peloton bike isn't as cool as I thought it was. I thought it was gonna pedal for me, you know? Like I thought, I thought I'd buy the bike and I'd get in better shape. And it's like, yeah, you just started to fade a little bit, right? We're getting close to the Super Bowl. 80% of New Year's resolutions are abandoned by the Super Bowl. So if you're still with yours, hang in there and you can beat the numbers, okay? But I mean, we've all, right? You don't go to the gym because in the moment, it's like, like the easiest thing to do. You go to the gym because it's like, all right, long-term, this is good for my health. This is good for my flourishing. This is what I wanna do. All right, so we, we all face it practically, right? You could insert a million different things. Um, but we also face it spiritually, like in, in really significant ways that have an impact, not just um, you know, on our immediate lives but on our eternal life. Um, I mean, let me give you a couple of questions. Man, do I hit the snooze button or do I read my Bible? I got a little hum over here. Somebody's done that before. Right? Um, do I prioritize Christian community or do I find uh, reason after reason that I just, can't, I just can't right now? I just don't have enough time. I can't be in a group. I can't come to the weekend or I can't be on a serving team. I just can't because I've got all these other things going on. Um, do I lower my standards to date this guy? Right? Um, let, me just give you, let me just give you a practical tip here. If you find yourself asking the question, how Christian does she have to be to date? You're in the wrong place. Okay, like, and you've been there, you know, you're like, how Christian does he have to be? And it's like, I can say the answer is he's not Christian enough, okay? Like, if you're asking that question, that's the wrong question, right? But we do that. Um, do I play with my kids or do I scroll my phone? Right, it's like kids takes engagement. You gotta get down their level and you gotta like resolve conflict. You gotta invest in them. And you're like, or I could scroll my phone and give them a tablet. What should I do? Uh, do I control my tongue or do I lash out in anger? Right, do I invest in my marriage or do I, do I just give up? And maybe, I, maybe we get divorced or maybe I just, I just detach emotionally, right? And I'm just not there anymore. And we're just sort of like roommates raising kids and we'll keep it together until the kids graduate, you know, and then, and then we'll get divorced. I mean, we face these decisions every single day, right? Every single day we face the spirit of Esau that says, just do whatever feels good and don't worry about the future, right? And in this moment, Esau made a decision that's gonna impact the rest of his life. And I wonder if you've ever done that. And maybe you like drank something that you shouldn't have, shouldn't have drank or maybe you went somewhere that you probably shouldn't have gone or maybe you said something that you can't get back or maybe you did something that, man, you can't undo. And man, now you're feeling the effects, man, of that spirit of Esau. You see, the, the problem for Esau was that he didn't understand his life in terms of the grand narrative of what God was doing. He, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna make long-term choices, you have to have long-term vision. Like if you're gonna make the decision to invest in your marriage, you have to remember that your life is about more than just feeling good right now. But your life is about like, man, what, what does God wanna do in and through me and my marriage? 
Like, what does God, God wanna do in my character through my marriage? What does God wanna do in my wife's character through our marriage? What does God wanna do in our kids' lives through our marriage? What does God wanna do in our church through our marriage? What does God wanna do in our extended family through our marriage? And here's, here's what you could become. You could become someone who builds the kind of marriage that impacts hundreds of people by your example, or you could do what feels good this weekend, right? And it's like, well, which one do I want? It's like, well, it depends on what you're focusing on. Right, Esau was hyper-focused on what I want right now and he had no concern for the grand narrative of what God was doing in the world. So that's the spirit of Esau. So how about Jacob? Well, Jacob is the villain in this story, right? I mean, he's calculated, he's greedy, he's manipulative. He was focused on himself. The spirit of Esau says, how can I accomplish my goals? How can I achieve my dreams? How can I get ahead and how can I take care of number one? And the spirit, of, the spirit of Jacob is alive and well in all of us today, right? I mean, the spirit of Jacob destroys marriages. It asks, what can I get or what am I owed rather than how can I serve or how can I give? I've seen the spirit of Jacob absolutely tear churches apart. Do you know what the spirit of Jacob in a church looks like? Man, what do I prefer rather than how can I contribute? I mean, the spirit of Jacob infects friend groups, office cultures, and extended families. I mean, you've probably seen this. Um, and if, if you're like a type A driven person like I am, you may be more susceptible to the spirit of Jacob. Do you know why? Because Jacob's do very well in our world. Like if Jacob were alive today, do you know where he'd be going to school? The University of Virginia. He would be, because that's what you all do. You're like high achievers. You get your, like you're, and I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying like, that's where Jacob would be. He wouldn't be at JMU having a good time. You know, like that's just wouldn't be what he was doing. <laughs> I'm gonna get an email about that. Right, he'd, he'd be at UVA. You know what he'd be awesome on? He'd be awesome on LinkedIn. Oh man, he'd have the greatest, he'd be always connecting with people, trying to network and get ahead. Man, he'd be outperforming his, his coworkers at work. Man, he'd be outperforming his peers. You know, he, he'd like get VP before anybody else from his graduating class got VP. Cause that's who he is. Man, how can I manipulate? How can I strive? How can I scheme to get ahead? The problem is people that are like Jacob are, also, are often very successful in our world and very difficult to reach with the gospel because they look around and be like, well, I tend to be doing pretty well right now. So I guess I'll be doing pretty well for eternity, right? And just like Jacob, they're like, if I can just get the birthright through manipulation, why do I need to trust in the Lord? Whether you struggle with the spirit of Esau, the spirit of Jacob or, or something in between, man, the solution is the same. We need to learn to see our lives in light of God's promise. You see, Esau didn't care about the promise. He had no eternal perspective, no wisdom, no concern for lineage and legacy. He didn't care about it. Jacob didn't trust in it. Because before his birth, what had God said? God had already said, you're the one that's gonna get the birthright. You're the one that's gonna get the blessing. You're the one that's gonna get the land. You're the one that's gonna get the covenant promise. He didn't need to manipulate his brother because he'd already been given the blessing. But Jacob was trying to gain through manipulation what God had already given him by grace. God had chosen Jacob, but Jacob acted like he had to earn it. And I wonder how many of us are doing that exact same thing today. Trying to obtain through performance what God has already given you by grace. God has said of me, I'm a son of God and ambassador of Christ. But do you know what I feel like I have to do every Sunday when I get up here? I feel like I have to prove that I'm worth something as a good preacher. Ladies, God has said that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that he made you on purpose and with a purpose. But how many of you got up this morning and looked in the mirror and said, I am valuable because I am beautiful? 
Men, God has said that your significance comes from walking in the good works that he has prepared for you to walk in. But how many of you go to work and perform to prove you're worth something? And how many of you go to the gym and try to get more PRs to show that you are worth something? And how many of you think, man, I'm worth something because of what I drive, or I'm worth something because of what I make, or I'm worth something because of what I do? College students, God has said, man, that your identity is in him, it is not in your GPA. And yet how many of you look at that GPA and say, okay, I'm a three point blank. I would say that maybe every single one of us is striving today to try to obtain something through effort and through performance and through manipulation that God has already given us by grace. And friends, when we do that, it always brings brokenness into our lives, always. And that's one of the, that's one of the lessons of Jacob's life. He's gonna spend 30 years striving to obtain something God had already given him and he's gonna break relationship after relationship after relationship because he is so desperate to feel like he's worth something. And I wonder if that's you today. And maybe you're here and you're like, Josh, I'm, I feel exhausted from striving. I feel exhausted from trying to prove that I am worth something, that if I could just be a good enough mom or a good enough student or a good enough athlete or a good enough whatever, then I'm worthwhile and then I matter. And God is looking at you and saying, that is not where your identity comes from. Friend, if you are in Christ, hear me, your identity has been divorced from your performance. They're not connected anymore. You're not your family dysfunction. You're not your marital conflict. You're not your sexual past. You're not defined by what you've done or what's been done to you. You're defined by the finished work of Christ. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And yet how many of us are spending our lives and spending our weeks trying to prove through striving and manipulation what God has already given us by grace? And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're sort of just kind of checking things out, the good news is that you can change. And you can be transformed from a rebel into a worshiper. You can be transformed from a child of wrath to a child of God. Man, your, your story can be different. Your family can be different from the family that you came from. You can receive through faith and the work of Christ on your behalf. You can start trusting in the promises of God as you see the work of the truer and better Jacob on your behalf, Jesus Christ. You see, seen through the right lens, I love this, this story screams Jesus's name. I mean, think about it. Jesus is the truer and better Isaac, isn't he? Who prays for his bride, the church, that we might be fruitful and multiply. He never gives up year after year. Jesus Christ is the truer and better Esau and who didn't trade long-term blessing for temporary comfort, but for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father so that you and I might be reconciled. Jesus Christ is the truer and better Jacob, the firstborn over all creation, who stood to inherit all glory and all honor and all praise, but who traded his blessing with us. He didn't take our blessing, he gave us his. On the, on the cross, Jesus gave up his birthright so that we could be brought into the family. Jesus was treated like an enemy so that you and I could be treated like children of God. And when you fix your eyes on Christ, when you fix your eyes on what he's done, it enables you to say, I don't have to strive and I don't have to work and I don't have to perform to try to feel like I'm worth something. And that I can rest in the finished work of Christ and I can respond to God's grace and walk in faithfulness. Would you bow your heads with me? I wonder if this morning there's somebody here that's just, striving and working and performing to try to obtain something 
that God has already given you. Friend, if you're tempted to do that like I am, I just wanna invite us both to lay it down and to receive from Christ the identity of son or daughter and to live in that posture. Father God, I thank you that you are a gracious God who doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities, but instead is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I pray that you'd help me and I pray that you'd help our church and to really lean into the promise that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. And then in response to that grace, to walk in the good works that you prepared for us to do. God, we love you and we trust you. And pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.